This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, the year's winding down. Business is picking up on both the state and federal exchanges. The White House is saying that over 300 bugs have been fixed on the federal site, healthcare.gov, and that it should be able to handle the anticipated load of 50,000 customers at once and hopefully 800,000 in a day. Well, that is really good news, Mark. And there are still some fixes underway, I know, including challenges to be worked out on the Spanish language sites as well as the Small Business Exchange. Those fixes were pushed back so that the repairs could be made to the main site. But I think we'll see more activity on the Federal Exchange now that the bulk of these bugs have been worked out and not a moment too soon. You're absolutely right. And there is more deadline pressure factor as well. Uh, But the deadline has been pushed back a little. You now have until December 23rd to select a plan in time to make sure you're covered for the first of the new year. And some other deadlines have been pushed back as well. Insurers are being given some extra time next year to set up their rates for 2015. And there was another interesting development, Mark. The Supreme Court has decided not to hear a case brought against the Affordable Care Act by Liberty University. That's Jerry Falwell's conservative college. And they were challenging the law's requirement that institutions must provide insurance for their employees or pay a fine. And the high court has opted not to hear that case. There are still other legal challenges pending, Margaret, including a claim by a private for-profit company. They shouldn't have to pay for birth control uh, based on religious grounds. That decision is still looming. Well, our guest today can speak to some of the legal issues surrounding the Affordable Care Act. Dr. Tim Timothy Jost is a law professor at Washington and Lee University. He's a legal analyst for the healthcare industry and has been writing and speaking extensively about the Affordable Care Act. He's going to shed some light on the rollout of the health care law, some of the changes that have been required, and the impact that it's likely to have overall on health care consumers. Laurie Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, will be stopping by to shine a spotlight on misstatements about health policy spoken in the public domain. And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by Googling CHC Radio. We'll get to our interview with Timothy Jost in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. While glitches have been fixed, many of them on the federal insurance exchange site, healthcare.gov, many issues and questions still linger. There are still concerns across the country on the functionality of the part of the site that verifies income and identity as well as resident status of those applying for health care coverage. And some states who have proactively set up their own exchanges are seeking to further distance themselves from the federal site, which has had numerous scheduled and non-scheduled downtimes, which hampers the state's abilities to carry out enrollment. Connecticut is seeking to work through its own revenue services and labor department offices to set up an independent verification route for its customers in-state. And insurance companies are also concerned about the system that verifies tax subsidies and how they'll be provided to insurers. A number of insurers have claimed they're not being given correct forms with verification data and have had to fix that problem themselves on the fly. Meanwhile, administrators of healthcare.gov use web analytics software to track the insurance exchange's performance in real time in order to identify and fix issues hampering you 
users of the website. The software from startup New Relic was a key tool that led to several of the fixes, including a new feature that alerts consumers via email when the exchange is available to process their requests. And wants your daughter to be a science or math whiz? It's a quest that has confounded educators for some decades now. Well, the answer may lie on the soccer field. Turns out it helps young girls wire their brains for spatial math, physics, and other complex scientific ideas. I'm Mariano Hare with these healthcare headlines. Today we're speaking with Timothy Jost, law professor at Washington and Lee University in Virginia. Professor Jost is an expert on the Affordable Care Act and health policy. is a regular contributor to peer-reviewed health industry publication, Health Affairs, and is a frequent commentator on health law on NPR and CNN. Professor, uh, welcome back to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you. Good to be here. You know, I remember the last time you were on, just before the Supreme Court ruled, you were a little worried about the state's argument that the feds can't constitutionally require them to expand the Medicaid program. And you thought that that was sort of at the heart of federalism, that if this was sort of approved, uh, that this could pose problems for the uh, Medicaid program. And so I wanted to get your sort of thoughts on that. It's a little while out. But I also wanted to ask you about the now that we're out in on the cusp of the full implementation of the Affordable Care Act, what changes have happened to this act since the Supreme Court decision, and how have they strengthened or weakened the law? Well, with respect to the first question, I think we're, we're really beginning to see now, and I think we will really see after the first of the year, what a, a devastating effect the Supreme Court's opinion has had on trying to expand health insurance in the United States to cover the uninsured. We now have probably about half the states that have decided at this point at least not to expand Medicaid to cover Mm -hmm. people under uh, 138% of poverty level. Um, And the uh, premium tax credits will pick up people over 100% of poverty. But uh, for people under 100% of poverty, um, for people who don't otherwise qualify for Medicaid, which would be single adults and Uh, and couples without children, and in many states, such as Virginia, even parents with minor children whose incomes are are not very, very low. I think in Virginia it's about 30% of poverty that you can earn and still qualify for Mm. Medicaid. For all those people, Mm. they're going to be too poor to qualify. And so you're going to see a situation where uh, families over 100% of poverty level will qualify for really at the, at the, at the 100% level will qualify for very generous tax credits, uh, very low cost sharing, and people immediately below that level, which could be people earning exactly the same income in a slightly larger, like if you have a two-adult two family rather than a one-adult family, you could have the same income level, and yet the, the people would be below the poverty level and won't qualify for anything. And that's going to be millions of people. So I think we're going to see the consequence of that Supreme Court decision very soon, where people are, uh, are, are just going to be too poor to qualify for anything. In terms of other changes in the law, there really haven't been any changes in the law itself. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there have been a whole series of regulations and guidances implementing the law, some of them delaying the implementation of certain parts of the law. 
And so those will make a practical difference, but they're not actually changes in the law itself. Well, Tim, I uh, wonder, as you talk about the impact of Medicaid from a another perspective, we certainly have questioned whether there would be a uh, sort of last minute or sometime in the new year of 2014 pressure brought to bear on those states, on their uh, legislatures and governors from the healthcare industry, if nobody else, if not for the people themselves, for the healthcare industry, to uh, go ahead and expand Medicaid. I wonder if you'd like to do any uh, crystal ball gazing for us. Do you think that that's in the cards? Do you think we'll begin to see a shift or maybe after the elections uh, later in the year that we'll see some changes there? Well, I think the pressure is going to be tremendous. In, In Virginia, where I live, an economic study was done that projected that we would be losing almost $4 billion a year um, in federal spending in, in Virginia. Three to 400,000 people more would be uninsured, and we'd lose 30,000 jobs. And in fact, in the short run, the state, would, would, state spending would be less with the Medicaid expansion than without it. We just elected a governor who uh, is committed to extending Medicaid, and the, the state Senate, which has been in, under the control of moderate Republicans, has supported Medicaid expansion. They can see the, the business case for it, and we'll have to see how it all ends up in the mix. But I really do think, I mean, you're seeing moderate Republican governors really pushing for this and, and legislators because they realize that this is uh, this is a tremendous loss to their states. But for those who care more about ideology than about jobs and 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 uh, and, and insurance for poor people, they're going to continue to dig in their heels, and so we'll just see how the balance of power goes. You know, we had uh, Kentucky uh, Governor Bushier on the line uh, for an interview the other day, and he's obviously in a red state and did it by executive order. Um, mm-hmm. So I think. Uh, I think you're right. There are a lot of governors who are trying to who, yeah. who understand the economies yeah. of this and are trying to work it out. You know, the act has had so many big challenges, and certainly uh, uh, the website's not the only one. Uh, sort of the president was accused of not keeping his promise around the sort of uh, ability for Americans to keep their existing plan and. The president offered a fix uh, for one year saying insurance companies should allow those plans to continue through 2014, and several states rejected that option. Uh, First of all, you you say that the promise was seriously misrepresented in the media. Is the president's fix a good idea, and uh, does it compromise any other aspects of the law in your mind? The promise of the law itself was that if you have a health insurance policy that is in force on the day that this law is adopted, March 23, 2010, Nothing in this law will take that health insurance policy or plan away from you. Actually, I mean, there were a few really important provisions that the plans had to comply with, but but that was basically done, and it wasn't a big problem. So basically, people who still have health insurance policies that were in effect, um, they still have those policies. They're still in force. But it didn't mean that any policy you buy any time in the future, you'll be able to keep forever. It couldn't have meant that, because the whole point of the law was to change the way in which health insurance is sold in the United States. And so, you know, here we are uh, almost four years later, uh, and all of a sudden people are surprised that this law that was intended to change the the way health insurance is sold (laughs) and the way uh, these policies are written is actually doing that. And I'm a little disappointed that the president didn't communicate more clearly to people what the promise was. Now, 
They've, he's come up with this policy that allows the state insurance commissioners to allow insurers uh, to continue to sell 2013 policies into 2014. You know, we're going to have to transition at some point. I frankly think that for probably the majority, probably the vast majority of people who have plans now, they're going to see that, that they can get more affordable coverage once they go through the exchanges and, and take advantage of the premium tax credits. But for some higher-income people who uh, have been getting very low rates because they're, they're healthy, they are going to see higher rates and, and maybe even coverage that isn't as generous. So that's a real problem. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of the nature of change, that people who have been completely closed out of the market because of pre-existing conditions will be able to get health care, but people who have benefited from the market uh, because uh, it was really uh, oriented towards their needs uh, are now going to have to pay more. You've also noted that this could pave the way for a different payment structure that supports a high-risk pool as is done with Medicare, but that uh, you saw that there would be an inherent risk in that. That, that I think, is uh, another whole area that would be certainly a little bit murky to me at best. Could you clarify that for us a little? What do you mean by that? The law itself uh, includes three premium stabilization programs uh, because there is the fear that uh, that you're going to have a lot more people, and I think we're seeing this right now, actually, a lot more higher-risk people entering the market mm-hmm. who have been closed out of the market or who have had to pay very high premiums, and that that is going to uh, kind of increase the risk pool for, for health insurers. And I think also there's concern that the president's plan, and then to a much greater extent, some of the fixes that Congress is considering right now that would allow people to continue to buy 2013 plans into 2014 uh, would really segregate the risk pool. I think that's probably what you're referring Mm -hmm. to. Uh, These premium stabilization programs are intended to help with that. One of them is a reinsurance program that would collect a fee from people, uh, from insurers, and then would use that to back up insurers in the individual market who have very high cost cases. Uh, the federal government would absorb some of that cost. A second program, a risk adjustment program, moves funds from um, insurers that tend to do very well, have low-risk enrollees, to those who have high-risk enrollees. And then a third plan, which has not gotten much coverage but is is starting to get more coverage now, is a risk corridor program so that insurers in the exchange, mainly uh, insurers with qualified health plans, who end up losing money uh, because the risk pool turns out to be worse than what they anticipated, would be compensated again by insurers who make money because they uh, put their premiums high enough to cover their costs. But in that program, the federal government would be the ultimate backstop so that if all the insurers lost money, the federal government would uh, would kick in to, uh, to backstop them in that program. We're speaking today with Timothy Jost, a law professor at Washington Lee University in Virginia. Professor Jost is an expert on the Affordable Care Act and health policy and is a regular contributor to the publication Health Affairs as well as a frequent commentator on health law issues on NPR and CNN. Tim, let's go back to the problem rollout of the federal exchange. And uh, lots of people have had uh, various solutions to help with the enrollment process. 
But people have suggested that perhaps direct enrollment in the future might be helpful where customers uh, would be able to buy the plans directly from the insurers and then figure out the federal subsidy part later. Uh, what are your thoughts about direct enrollment, and uh, does it adequately protect consumers? The federal government put out guidance last May talking about direct enrollment and then put in rules over the summer, and those were finalized actually before the website opened. And the idea there is not that insurers would be able to bypass healthcare.gov because the law simply doesn't allow that, but rather that insurers could... Uh, if they if they have people who want to enroll from them, they could take those people into healthcare.gov, establish their eligibility for premium tax credits, and then take them back out again and enroll them in one of their plans. And they would have to tell the person, you know, there are more plans available to you in healthcare.gov if you would like to use the public website. But if you want to enroll with us, these are the plans that are available. Web brokers can do the same thing, like e-health insurance. And I think this is problematic because obviously people won't see the same range of choices. They can choose to, but if they decide to stay with their insurer, they won't see the same range of choices that they would see on the government website. On the other hand, one of the goals of the exchange is to get millions of people enrolled in health care. And uh, if we can do that more easily by having the insurers help out with direct enrollment, then you know the price you pay for that is is probably having somewhat more constrained choice. But one thing that is not being considered, as far as I've heard, uh, and would not be legal under the current law, it would take a change in the law for them to do this, would be to allow insurers to simply directly enroll people without having any contact mm -hmm. with the website and somehow qualify people for premium tax credits. I, I don't see how you can mm -hmm. have private businesses deciding whether somebody gets right. a, a tax credit or not. Well, you noted in a recent health affairs blog post uh, something else that I think very few consumers probably are aware of. And Thus, the Department of Health and Human Services has issued rulings on determining which health plans rank as quality health plans, or QHPs, I'm sure is the new acronym. So I understand the consumer will play a role in that determination by engaging in surveys based on their experience with the exchanges and the affordability of the plans and so on. Tell us about these ratings. How are they going to work? Why do they matter? And when does this element of change actually get underway? I think the goal right now is to have this ready in 2015 for when people start shopping for plans in 2016, that you will have pretty comprehensive information available rating health plans based on quality. So they're, they're starting to put out now uh, proposed metrics that they would use for rating the plans. And so you'll probably see a, a star rating just like you do now when you go to TripAdvisor or Amazon or one of the, the websites. And then the other thing, and well, actually it would be part of that, is uh, consumer satisfaction rankings. One thing people have to understand is that this is a process that we're going to start with something pretty basic and then over the next few years it will ramp up. And so um, you know, if we're having this conversation two years from now, their consumers are going to have a lot more information available than they do now when they're picking 
plans, but you have to start somewhere. I wonder what your thoughts are about the change in the filibuster rule in in the Senate and how that's going to impact the courts. You know, it's probably a longer-term play, but some of these federal districts are not conducive to raising some important questions, but the uh, certainly the D.C. District Court is in focus. How do you see the long-term play in terms of uh, the change in the landscape uh, with this change as Senate rules? I think the D.C. Circuit, the specific issue that was before Congress, the D.C. Circuit is terribly important in that that's where a lot of the key challenges end up to federal laws. And uh, the D.C. Circuit has some very conservative judges on it who I think in some rulings tend to look more outcome-oriented than law-oriented from my perspective. And to the extent that challenges are, you know, are brought in the D.C. Circuit to the law, having three more moderate judges on the court, I think, uh, makes it somewhat more likely that those challenges will not succeed. Right now, the filibuster rules have only been changed for the appointment of of lower court judges and administration appointees. Should the filibuster rule change at some point for laws and the Republicans take control of the Senate, then I think that could be a more existential threat to the Mm -hmm. Affordable Care Act. So I think to that extent, it's it's troublesome. I, I should also note, however, that one of the challenges was brought against the Affordable Care Act, the uh, the challenge to the individual mandate before the D.C. Circuit, uh, which ended up before at least a a couple of the three judges were very conservative, and they actually ruled in favor of the individual mandate in in some very interesting decisions. So Hmm. I don't know how, how this is all going to work out, but I think you're right that it probably may have an impact eventually on the future of the law. Well, there certainly have been a lot of legal challenges. That would be an understatement yeah. to the law. Yeah. Um, and I think we, uh, you know, in our, our uh, primary care space tend to think about individual enrollment. But there's also that issue of the small business mandate, which uh, did get a one-year delay. I know we're doing a lot of asking you to do a little uh, somewhere between analytics and crystal ball gazing. But what's the key change going to be for small businesses in the country as uh, they move towards that mandate? How are, how are small businesses going to behave in terms of covering their employees? I think that the delay of the mandate probably isn't going to have a huge effect. I think something like 95% of businesses with 50 or more employees cover their employees with health insurance. There, I think, is little evidence that there's going to be a mass exodus of larger employers from the health insurance market. I mean, they were offering health insurance long before there was a mandate, and and there are lots of reasons why employers offer health insurance, the most important of which, no doubt, is the fact that that you can't hire somebody in a competitive employment market without health insurance. With respect to small groups, I don't know. Small groups are not required to offer health insurance. There are premium tax credits for very small groups with low-wage workers, but those don't apply to a lot of small groups. The statute does require small groups to cover the essential health benefits. Well, that's really in all group markets. So I think some small groups are going to see their costs go up, uh, and some small groups, frankly, cover. I was just talking to a friend the other day who has a small business, and I think many of his employees would do better in the exchange. And Hmm. so the question is, should I continue to offer coverage that is 
you know, pretty pricey for my employees, or should I drop it and maybe pay them a little more, and then they can get coverage with premium tax credits in the exchange? So I don't know where small business is going to end up on this. I would expect that, as is the case now, small businesses who find it in their interest uh, for business reasons, reasons to offer health insurance, will continue to do so, and those who, who I have employees who would do better in the exchange may drop it. I think that was the projection of the CBO to begin with, that it would be kind of a mixed bag, and I think that's still probably the best guess. We've been speaking today with a Timothy Jost, law professor and health industry expert at Washington and Lee University in Virginia. You can find out more about his work by going to law.wlu.edu. Tim, thanks so much for joining us My in the conversation. My pleasure. Good to talk to both of you. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, we recently looked at a claim from Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, who said the Medicaid expansion in the Affordable Care Act may bankrupt rural hospitals in the state. But Kentucky health care leaders say the hospitals stand to benefit because the expansion would extend insurance to those who otherwise wouldn't be able to pay their hospital bills. Senator Paul has introduced legislation to repeal the Medicaid expansion. He said the state hospitals could be overwhelmed with new Medicaid patients and may go bankrupt. But state health care officials have supported the expansion, partly because it would financially help the hospitals. In addition to expanding Medicaid to those earning up to 138% of the federal poverty level, the Affordable Care Act also slowly reduces federal funding for uncompensated care that goes to hospitals. The uncompensated care payments will be cut by $18.1 billion over seven years nationwide to help pay for the Medicaid expansion. In Kentucky, the state estimates the Medicaid expansion would cover an additional 308,000 state residents. A past president of the Kentucky Hospital Association said that not expanding Medicaid would financially hurt hospitals and that the hospitals supported the expansion. The state cabinet for health and family services issued a report recommending expansion, saying our hospitals will suffer without it. It estimated that the cut in uncompensated care payments would total $287.5 million over eight years. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Much emphasis has been paid of late to the dangers of distracted driving. A number of states have enacted laws banning texting and driving, which has led to a number of traffic deaths across the country. But what about distracted walking? A recent in-depth study conducted by safekids.org showed some pretty startling statistics. Older teens now account for over half of all pedestrian deaths of children. And what of the main culprits? 
distracted walking. We saw a 25% increase in teen fatalities within the last five years, and that's what alarmed us. And we did an observational study where we collected data from over 34,000 observations of middle schoolers and high schoolers while they were walking in a school zone and crossing the street. We saw that one in five high school students were distracted um, by using their mobile device. They were either texting, using headphones, or talking on their cell phone. And we saw one in eight middle schoolers also uh, doing the same thing. Kate Carr is president and CEO of SafeKids.org, whose mission is to find the best ways to keep kids safe. Of the tens of thousands of kids they observe walking to school in various different neighborhoods, almost 40% were seen crossing the street while texting, talking talking on their phone, listening to music with headphones, or playing with some gaming device. She decided there needed to be a campaign to promote better awareness to reduce the trend, and they created a moment of silence. This campaign is a reminder to uh, especially teens. They're 50% of the fatalities in kids under the age of 19. But for everybody who's distracted while walking, put that device down. Create a moment of silence when you're crossing a street or you're on a sidewalk or in a parking lot around cars. Put your device down. Take your headphones or your earbuds out. She realizes that kids, especially teens, will not be separated from their mobile devices. But if they could just put them down while walking across the street or through intersections, engage in a moment of silence, the number of teen pedestrian deaths would be greatly reduced. She's urging parents and pediatricians alike to access their site, safekids.org, for more details about a moment of silence campaign and bring that message home to kids. A simple slogan-based campaign to raise awareness about the dangers of distracted walking, that has potential to save the lives of child pedestrians and adults for that matter. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Mazzelli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.